You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. So we are focusing on health at every size at the moment and today you'll hear a conversation I had with a lady called Fiona Willer. Fiona is in Australia and she has got well, she has got so, she's got tons of qualifications, okay? So it's things like advanced, accredited, practicing dietitian, Australian independent dietitian, nutritionist. But she's just got, there's a whole list of those, and I'm going to link to her bio so you can see all of those. But really, what I think is the more important thing that is that Fiona's mission is to empower health professionals to adopt weight neutral practice and um, also supporting them in doing so. And so, what we talk about in this podcast is we talk about health at every size, what it is and what it isn't. But we also get into some nitty gritty into um, practitioners who are advertising or saying that they practice health at every size and then maybe not quite doing so or even maybe not quite understanding how they are not doing so. So really good podcast for you to listen to if you know that you maybe need a dietitian or you know that you need a therapist and you want to work with somebody who adopts health at every size philosophy and principles because you know that that's what you need. How to look at like well even if somebody is saying that they do these things are they actually doing these things? And how to eke that out, and I think that this is got you know this is a bit of a, a tweaky one for some people. This might for some people listening sort of deliver a few home truths that maybe will help them look at what they're doing if they are a practitioner and maybe have a think about that. So I'm always in favour of these conversations that might be a little bit difficult to listen to, might be a little bit difficult to understand, but are actually very important in this field. And in this field, definitely in terms of treatment. So, Fiona Willer, I'm just going to get on with the conversation. Here's Fiona. Oh, you may or may not hear at some stage in this interview a very small little barky dog sound. (laughs) If you do hear it, just ignore it. Okay, so I... I'm a advanced accredited practicing dietitian in Australia and my work at the moment is PhD research into health at every size and other weight neutral lifestyle approaches in the dietetics profession and also the impact that that philosophy has on people's lifestyle behaviours. So that's my research world and then my work world is really translating weight science and weight neutral science um, to other health professionals. So I do lots of professional development workshops for dietitians and psychologists and doctors and other uh, health and medical and fitness professionals Um, and also am quite active on social media, breaking down the um, scientific method when it's uh, regarding weight, basically. So helping to see the devil in the details and how weight bias is pervasive in all the research, um, as well as, you know, not not just in society. And what is the, if, if you could tell me one thing, the one message that comes through from that, what, what would that be? Well, you could don't have to stick to one, but you know what I mean. <laughs> What's the major stuff that comes through? That really to be the best 
kind of health professionals that we can be, we need to know our own biases and we need to know the biases of the research. And so that's really my big sort of thrust these days is to try to unpack that for people, help people unpack that. What do, what would you, what do you think is sort of one of the, when you say you help somebody, um, people unpack that, what is something that is a really either common misconception or something that you sort of might have to work through? So there's this perception that research papers are always 100% objective and and trustworthy out there, except a research paper is just a piece of persuasive writing like almost any other kind of writing that humans do. So unpacking the way that research works is really important. So that's, you know, showing people not to trust the conclusion section. They've got to wade into the methods and the results and actually know what they're doing in those fields. Yeah, and it's that sort of (laughs) being able to look at something and then not take it at face value, I guess. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) And see where, you know, the sections that the authors can get really creative in. Um, and they're the ones that people tend to read instead of reading actually what they found. Oh, I bet you must go crazy about all the sort of nutrition science that comes out. Because <laughs> that stuff's whack. It, it just mm. kills me. And, you know, even most recently I was reading a paper by a colleague of mine who works, uh, who does research in diet quality. She's a weight-centric researcher, very much so. And I'm reading her paper and her paper found that women, adults, adult women in larger bodies who ate fruit and veggies in the highest sort of category of fruit and vegetable intake tended to be the cheapest on the health service. So our Medicare service paid out less money for claims for people in that category. So I'm like, excellent, that's fabulous, except literally the next paragraph after they've explained that is a paragraph saying, mm, but they may be eating more, uh, less nutritious food as well as the fruit and veg. And I thought, well, that's actually completely unnecessary because your own research has just shown that it's not relevant. You found this association independent of any of the other stuff. And it, it just p- completely conjecture like not actually based on any of their findings at all that just kills me yeah, I'm sure it does <laughs> and, but then but then people read it and they believe it and they're quoting it and it's 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 off isn't it it's well it's it made it through wild. peer review like yeah. it's in a good it's in a good journal so there have been at least another three to four sets of eyes who if it were any other field would have gone yeah you you've just made that up potentially (laughs) you can't put that in there you need to keep it on track but because it's uh, obesity in inverted commas um we just get away with reinforcing these old tropes about um these assumptions around the way people live and there are many things like that aren't they that are actually assumptions that are not actually proven but because they've been around so long and so long they're just taken for granted to be true they're not questioned because they've been around so long Literally all of the stereotypical assumptions people have about people who live in larger bodies are actually the opposite in real life. Um, Like assumptions of that person just must eat 
so much food is often that's it. the opposite when we know, is true. <laughs> we know that the overlap between the sorts of energy requirements across the weight spectrum, there's a huge amount of variation. And so there are people in smaller bodies who are eating more than people in larger bodies. Um, there's a lot of overlap. Uh, and we also know that, you know, typically humans, human populations have been found to not eat in a way that's consistent with, say, national uh, guidelines, uh, but it's consistent across all of the BMI bands as well. So people in smaller bodies eat to the same degree of not to the guidelines as people in larger bodies, except the only headlines that we ever get are people in larger bodies not eating to the guidelines. And it drives me crazy because <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, I'm in a pretty average-sized body, but I eat, I eat all of the things that I should be told by guidelines <laughs> I shouldn't eat. I eat high-fat high diet. Does. I eat a high-fat <laughs> diet and it's, it's like crisps and chocolate and Wendy's. I love Wendy's. But... It, nobody would look at me and make that assumption about me. And point the finger, yeah. And I think the thing is, the thing is that people in smaller bodies who do eat uh, in varied ways, say not to the guidelines, I think they assume that people in larger bodies must be doing things even in their minds sort of even worse Absolutely. than them. Yeah, so yeah. they must be really overdoing it. But that's actually not, that's not what is actually happening out there. Everyone is eating equally as uh, interesting a diet. Mm -hmm. And often I think what those of us that sort of work in this field of eating disorders often find that people in larger bodies are actually restricting heavily. Oh, yes. Yes, exactly. <clears throat> Which nobody believes me when I say that. <laughs> Look at me like no. I'm crazy. I know. Well, that, that's, a, again, this assumption that the food that people eat must be self-evident in the shape of the body that they live in mm -hmm. is total bunk. Right. Which leads us on to health at every size. Okay, so health at every size, well, that's a term that we might have to, or I'd love you to actually tell me your definition of, because I know that people get a little bit like, what does this actually mean? But what we really want to talk about today is health of every size and what a true health of every size practitioner should look like and what to look for. Yeah, so my definition of health at every size is informed by the health at every size principles that ASDA holds and holds the trademark for. In my mind, because I have to use it both in a research sense as well as in a uh, communication sense with the public. So the way that I usually explain it is that health at every size is a philosophy. And if we think about philosophical laws, the most, uh, the highest philosophical law in health at every size is this principle of bodily autonomy. So the power of you to choose for yourself the degree that you want to focus on your own health and the and the degree that you want to make any sort of changes to your lifestyle. So that is the sort of the one law to rule it all. <laughs> and then coming under that is that the this notion of size acceptance. So no matter what shape or size your body is, you are under no moral ethical or health obligation to try to change that and instead to embrace what you have um, in whatever way you feel 
fit. And if that involves food and movement and any other sort of behaviour or thought patterns that enhance your life, then that is what it is for. So that's really health at every size. And so how does that, if, if a person says, says I'm, I practice, um, they might be a dietitian or they might be a therapist or then they say, I, I practice health with every size. Well, first of all, do they actually have to be certified in anything to be able to say that? There are a few certification programs. For example, there's an intuitive eating certification and another um, certification from a group called Be Nourished. Both of those are very good. Um, but you don't technically have to have any certification. However, if you use the term haze or health at every size in a way that isn't consistent with those philosophical principles, then um, the Association for Size, Diversity and Health in the US can send you a cease and desist essentially because you're not using the term oh, with the that. definition. Yeah, with the definition that they have legally protected it for. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Australia, we have been um, lucky enough. It is difficult, a difficult process, but we've just trademarked the term down here in Australia. So there's protections in Australia now as well. So, so greater protections than there might be in other parts of the world. Yes, yeah, so the Association for Size, Diversity and Health, although it's an international organisation, the trademark is a national trademark for the US. And so there's less, you could, they could still send a letter, but there's less um, ability for any sort of legal recourse in other countries, although we can do it now in Australia because we've just had the trademark through. Wow, okay. So is that something that you're quite excited about? Um, well, I, I can't see us being very litigious, but uh, it is a protection because there are lots of people who want to um, shoot down health at every size philosophy because they think that's something essentially that it isn't. They've got these misconceptions about the philosophy. Um, and also others who want to appropriate the term in order to market their services that may or may not be consistent with the principles. Um, Can we just start with the first one that you mentioned there, the people that want to shoot it down and maybe explain for anybody that might not understand why that might be what the sort of most common complaints are? Yeah, so we've got a, a real problem with people misconstruing the phrase health at every size to mean healthy at every size. Uh, because they think that what we're claiming is that health does not exist as a thing, you know, that we've taken any sort of qualitative differences in health and quality of life out of it. Does that make sense? And they say, well, you know, some people are not healthy, so you can't say that everyone's healthy at every size. I say, okay, well, that's because you have made no effort to actually learn about what the actual thing actually is. and we have, I mean, the problem is so big that we have had for years a problem keeping the Wikipedia entry for Health at Every Size to be actually accurate because there are Wikipedia editor trolls on there oh. who change back any changes that we make to the oh, page. How annoying. Yeah. And the notes behind the scenes, you, know, you see the nice pretty front-facing, but in the Wikipedia editor set, you know, the notes behind it, there are constant squabbles going on about what's on in there so it's a real target for um concern trolls and other sort of um 
toxic internet people, I guess, who sit there to try to control the messages that go out about things that are countercultural. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, sounds like a fun time <laughs> oh, behind the scenes I, at Wikipedia. <laughs> I know. Well, this year I'm really, well, the next 12 months, the next uh, sort of our membership cycle of Hayes Australia and um, ASDA, I'm going to really try to flagship a more consistent effort to fix it because there has been, you know, people have tried really hard to change it and get it changed and then it's just gone straight back. So it's been a bit frustrating, but I really, really, I, I think if we can do that, we'll make a big difference to the public perception. Yes. So if they're wondering what it is and going there, then we're lost, you know. Right. And that's a lot of people that's actually considered this is going oh, yeah. to be one of the most reliable sources. Precisely, but it's not. It's a toxic pit of wrong in there right now. <laughs> <laughs> so Wikipedia, toxic pit of wrong. For that's that particular entry, it sucks. <laughs> For that entry, toxic pit of wrong. I like that. Um, okay, and so the second part then um, about practitioners. Yeah, right. So we've got, I mean, when people first learn about haze and about size acceptance and even maybe to a greater degree about body positivity, you know, it sounds fabulous. It sounds empowering. You know, it's a usual female empowerment melody, essentially, and it's very attractive, mindful eating too, because it's such a instantly gratifying process. So these things make it um, a magnet for people who are looking for something different, essentially. Um, however, and you would have experienced this as well, you first hear about it and you get learn a little bit more and a little bit more and it's a bit like peeling back layers of an onion and you can't do the whole thing at once. It's not like you can go from a weight-centric perspective that you've always had and you're literally conditioned throughout your entire life to have this weight-centric perspective and then hear about health at every size or intuitive eating or body positivity and go, oh, I get it, bang. You're very unlikely to be able to do that unless you have had struggles yourself in a larger body and have been through all the things so that it's self-evident that what, what it actually is. If you haven't quite had that whole life process yourself, it's hard to just to get it. And so part of the consequence of that is that uh, people who work, say, in the wellness space, health coaching, or even as health professionals go, oh, yes, this sounds good, and I reckon it's attractive because I'm attracted to it. I'm going to start putting that on my masthead. But have it there, have, you know, haze or weight-neutral stuff, size acceptance services sitting above or below weight management as an entry for their services. And it's not really consistent. No. It's not consistent at all. It isn't. And you can, anyone who's doing that from the perspective of someone who is completely weight-neutral focused now, uh, it, you, you, you cannot do both. No. And, but I guess that a lot of people who are themselves relatively confused about what help they actually need, mm. and they might have heard about health every size and think, that sounds actually like what I need, but at the same time, they're always being bombarded with messages telling them that they need to lose weight. So they yes. already think and have been told, probably by their doctor, that they need to yeah. seek, weight, seek weight loss services. 
yeah. And so it would be a good thing if you were smaller. And then you've got the cultural messages also saying that you've got more social value if you're in a smaller body. And so all the forces are trying to tell them that a smaller body is a good thing. Yeah, it is It is tricky. And I think, you know, people who work in weight, you know, truly weight-neutral paradigm, we do want to reach those people with our services. They are the target market, the people who are still completely drenched in diet culture. And you need to talk their language to some extent to get them through the door. But it's sort of ineffective if you're getting them through the door. You can't do the bait and switch either. So talking to someone, uh, and particularly sort of on website and advertising materials, if you're saying, I help people with weight concern who are ready to stop dieting and we take a weight-neutral framework, that is accurate marketing <laughs> as opposed to someone who wants to take a weight-neutral framework but who's advertising it saying that they do uh, haze for weight loss or weight management including health at every size. That's double talk. Do you think that people who do that, I've seen it plenty of times myself, and, and so <laughs> do you think that people who do that are unaware of what they're doing or do you think they're just trying to try and have it all I think both I think but I think people who see it as a so they've got oh yeah haze is another skill I can do that I'll just put it on my list of stuff and that's obviously a very naive way of thinking about things because you can't really do haze stuff unless you have interrogated your own personal mm. weight bias you know what baggage you bring into the room with you that you're projecting on people unconsciously so uh, yeah I think they don't know any better because you don't know any better until you are challenged right. over these things mm. right and it takes such a there's a lot of education that goes into developing the consistency that one needs to develop with these types of messages and actually truly understanding yeah. rather than just thinking hey this is cool and this might attract people I should do this yeah, I mean, the body positivity thing is a lot more, there's a lot more public awareness of that. And there's a lot of people out there who are practicing from what they're saying is a body positive framework, who've never even heard of health at every size, you know, so it exists sort of mm. separately, to some extent, from haze. It, I see it. I mean, <laughs> a lot of my colleagues are quite angry about that appropriation of body positivity to the thin Instagram young woman mm. sort of um, mm -hmm. grouping. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think, you know, body positivity as a concept is a gateway drug to haze. Mm -hmm. And I'm okay with that I because, the mean. yeah, the, the horse is bolted in terms of the messaging over body positivity. We've got this sort of watered down, superficial, not really body positive version of body positivity, all the way through to the full intersectional feminist social justice voices in the field. Yes. But we can the message cannot be controlled now. We have to continue to speak the truth of it, but it's well beyond what we can um we, what we can control, at least with health at every size and, again, with the ownership of that phrase to some extent, we've got a bit more of control of the definition of that phrase. Right. Nobody owns body positivity. 
That's... No, it's gone. It's, it belongs to the masses now. <laughs> and it's it's always that it's always that woman who's smiling and eating a salad and being very positive oh, yes. about her body, um... laughing at lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> so she's out I... there. She's out there. We can't we can't get rid of her. <laughs> no, no, because again, they don't know really what they they don't know what they don't know. They're absolutely unconsciously incompetent. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that it's it's a maybe somebody should take ownership of body positivity because it I, I do get that it can be it can be a selling point for weight loss or restrictive eating practices like and often is yeah it would be good the trouble is uh, you know particularly from the perspective of someone who has been in trademark uh, law territory recently. <laughs> Uh, once the phrase is used in common vernacular, you can't get it back. You can't get it back. Yeah, okay, and just... so the the argument that they use is, is that people would use it accidentally without knowing the the yeah. meaning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. and so no, you can't trademark it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, I think I do think it's gone. I mean, there are people with body positive and body positivity in their business name, and they're doing great work, but. You know, you don't only have to look at the Bopo hashtag on Instagram to realise, yeah, it's it's a drop in the bucket of the number of people using that phrase now. So with people, back to practitioners that may be knowingly or unknowingly using a Hayes terminology and also advertising or promoting that they are would help a person with or focus on weight loss. Other than that's just irritating for people who have put a lot of work into the field and know what it's about. Other than being irritating, how can that actually be, be potentially harmful or not ideal for somebody who is maybe confused and trying to look to, to, for help? So the big risk is if you've got somebody coming to a service with weight concern to the degree that they're so upset about it that they want to pay someone to help them get rid of it and they think that the problem is weight but they also like the idea of not dieting because they've been on diets a lot and they don't like them they want something different so if you've got that person there and they're being told that health at every size means to essentially eat mindfully and you'll lose weight because you won't be binging anymore that's a that's that's wrong <laughs> and so you get you know they're they're being pitched this health at every size idea and looking at the um some of the research around it and yet still expecting weight loss then it's just a diet it's just a health at every size style mindful eating style diet and so it's a massive missed opportunity for change for that person and you end up only with superficial work going on for both the clinician and the and the client. And then I imagine that if that doesn't work, that client then goes away saying, well, I've tried health at every size and it didn't work. Yeah, I mean, there are bloggers out there who are saying exactly that. You know, they tried health at every size for three months. It didn't work because they thought that the outcome was going to be weight loss. And so therefore they've gone on to uh, diet again or you know have bariatric surgery or other sort of more extreme um, methods of weight control I find that very uh, disappointing because they could have had a different you know sliding doors moment it could have been very different for them 
Yeah, it's true. and it's it's very frustrating, isn't it? When you mm. when you know, okay, that could have been different. That didn't have to be that way. It wasn't that it was just not presented right. Um, That's it, and it it isn't for everyone. The health at every size and weight neutral approaches are fabulous for people at the point that they are really motivated to adopt that and to do lots mm. of work on their internalized bias. If they're not there then health at every size is not for them at that moment. Right. Because you know? So you can't, it's, it's not like a vaccination we can just give to everyone that's going to work. <laughs> it's there for people who need it. We do need weight neutral rhetoric to take over our public health spaces, that is for sure. So because at the moment the anti-obesity sentiment is entrenching weight prejudice and is increasing people's self-stigma, big style. So we need that from a sort of massive public health messaging perspective, needs to take the focus off weight and put it back on potentially things that enhance the lives of the population that the public health messaging is meant to be for. But at a one-on-one -on -one level, it's not going to be effective unless that person is motivated to do the work. Right. And for most people, because that that the message of this is how one loses weight is to go on a diet is so <laughs> yeah. it's just there from the beginning that most people have to cycle cycle through so many stages of that before they actually get to the point where they understand this is not working and I'm looking and and willing to try something that's radically different to that <laughs> exactly and we've got like in Australia our National Medical Research Council released a level A evidence statement saying that behavioural weight losses will return by two to five years for most people, level A. So as certain of that as they are that smoking causes cancer, that is the strength of that relationship. People will lose weight in the short term, it'll come back. They've, so that's one arm of it. And then the government has also got massive anti-obesity campaigns going on. So, they, you know, the one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing. Mm, uh -huh. Just drives me utterly insane. Uh -huh. and, and But then don't you find people arguing, okay, but the reason that people then gain weight back is that old famous term, but, lack of willpower. Yeah. Well, not, well, if like literally 95% of people have what they're deeming lack of willpower, then actually that's humaning. Yes. That's a human thing that's happening. It's not failure of the individuals to do the thing. And seriously, two it or three years? I mean, that's actual willpower. If this is about willpower, yeah. two or three years? That's a long yeah. time to keep something up. <laughs> right, exactly. But even then, people who continue to do the things that they're meant to do on the diet experience weight regain because all of the incredibly strong biological processes trying to maintain that higher body weight absolutely yeah so that you know fighting your own biology for two or three years that's yeah and, exactly. probably, and for most for most people it's not even that it's fighting their own biology for a lifetime until well yeah that's the expectation so if, if particularly uh medical professionals were honest what they're saying when they expect somebody to lose weight and keep it off is that they completely change and curtail social life, curtail quality of life, curtail all these things just in order to keep one number lower and completely ignore the, the benefits that can be had by doing other things that are much more um, enjoyable. It's all bringing it back to that number 
um, which as many people have begun to recognize is not an indication of actual health. It's not an indication of anything except gravity, really, is it? I was at the doctor's for an appointment last well, last week and they, you know how the nurse comes and gets you and then they weigh you. And yeah. I didn't have a problem with being, it just didn't bother me. I'm just like, fine. But then I asked her, so so what does this tell you? <laughs> she, she, she kind of couldn't tell me. She was just like, oh, we, just, we just do it. We do it, yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's so many things like that in medicine that are just, they're like historical mm-hmm. routines that happen and not actually based on outcomes. And they're not, they're not um, scrutinised either. Right. It's just assumed that this is the thing that you do and blah, da 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 Well, some of them are scrutinised, like BMI. There's been plenty to show that actually that shows nothing and even the guy that invented it says this doesn't actually give any yeah. meaningful information and yet <laughs> yeah. it's still I used. I did a, um, a podcast on the development of the BMI just within the last few months and um, I, I had read histories before but, you know, when you're actually having to produce something, you do look into it very deeply to make sure that you've got the right idea about it. Just incredible how just the, you know, literally a handful of powerful men completely derailed the scientific evidence because of their own prejudices against fat. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. It is, I mean, it is incredible. Heartbreaking. But you think about the way that the world was during the 50s, 60s, 70s. This is a time before the internet. It's a time before powerful statistical um, computing existed. So we're talking about literally pen and paper stats and, um, and these, the, the narrative that was being led by these men was one that could permeate everywhere because they had the voice in the medical journals which people read and there was no uh, well, limited sort of communication mm. opportunities for people to have a dissenting view. Mm-hmm. I guess that's privilege, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> they would not have even known the word no, back then, no. but that is exactly what it is. Yeah. Um, no, it's, and, but it, it, as you said, it, it's kind of when, you, there's many things that I often just think, you, you couldn't make this shit up. It's incredible <laughs> that, that, that that's, that's what we're dealing with. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just, BMI is just one example where it's absolutely everywhere. You can't get away from it. But then so is the obesity crisis. <laughs> oh, yeah. You just it's can't just... get away from that term. Right. And even now, you know, we've got some, still anti-obesity research is trying to redefine the term obesity to just people who are in larger bodies who are suffering some sort of consequences of that, which acknowledges that not every human with a BMI over 30 is actually medically unwell, which is a good start. But the thing, again, it's a bit like body positivity. The horse has freaking bolted. Like you can't, you're going to have... um, 40, 50, 60 years of medical and health research papers who are using one definition and then some groups using this alternative. I'm like, no, nah, you need another name. If you're going to do that, that needs another name because obesity as a term, it's gone. There's no redefining it here. There's only using it less 
its meaning is in stone. And maybe hopefully if we could just come up with, if there could be another term and another meaning, then maybe people would forget about it. That's it. At some point. Yeah, like it is, it is an interesting thing. You'd certainly need to look at the relationships in terms of risks, but if they're not controlled for health behaviours and not controlled for uh, self-stigma, not controlled for social determinants of health, then it is a pretty crap measure, but you still need to measure it. So I don't think the BMI itself is terrible. The classifications suck. That's the problem, the classifications and the judgments that come with that. Mm-hmm. But as a research um, measurement used as a continuous measurement, not categorical, you know, it, it, it has its place. It's all of these stupid judgments that we push, put on it that are problematic. And the, impo- and, and the judgments that were never really supposed to be there, I guess. No. And like literally they're just looking at the curve going, "Mm, yeah, okay, well, that's a round number there. We'll cut it off there. And then that's about the same number of digits. We'll then cut the next one off there. That's literally how it was, Mm -hmm. how the the BMI categorizations were determined. It's just crazy. It certainly is. So you, you are in Australia. It sounds like you are doing some fabulous things out there. Not only me, we've got a really committed... Uh, I guess it's a multidisciplinary group of Hayes practitioners down here, very motivated. We're really getting things getting things done, trying to educate lots of people. It's a great, it's a great group to be in. Yeah. And so, so what are some of the things that you're working on? So we've just in the last few years set up Hayes Australia, which is a non-profit organization down here to champion the um, health at every size principles. It's a, at the moment an association for health professionals because we think that is where the target in terms of information transfer should be down here at the moment. And we're spending a lot of energy educating uh, nutrition and dietetic students, psychologists, dietitians, medical professionals. There's lots of training opportunities going on. Um, and also advocacy, so writing to the government when they have a new obesity um, commission and writing to state governments about their uh, childhood obesity uh, uh, things as well. So we're really, it's an advocacy and uh, community building group at mm-hmm. the moment. And for people who are in Australia, where can they find information on that? Our website is hayesaustralia.org.au. So that's the the hub, but they also we also have a Facebook page, and they can join. Um, I would suggest r- regular humans who aren't um, Hayes practitioners necessarily should join some Hayes uh, Facebook groups, which are typically international, which is actually great. You get a lot; it's a real melting pot of ideas and. Um, support mm-hmm. in those sorts of groups yeah and i can link to those in the show notes for anybody who's listening and might just want some quick links as to where you can find those <laughs> groups i i too i highly recommend joining you'll learn so much yes just a vicarious learning even if you never ever post but reading through the yeah. different threads i mean that is how you peel the onion you know that is how you peel back what's challenging me? Why is that challenging me? Mm -hmm. Oh, look at these people who are living in a way that I could not have imagined five years ago, but I can imagine a bit more now Mm. could be me one day. You know, all of these steps are made really beautifully through this 
social network opportunities. Yes, because you can see from the posts, yes, as you said, even just reading and not posting, you can see other people working through things. Right. That exactly. Exactly what, what, what you And there are, you know, there are sociological theories that explain that phenomenon. And I've, I have had to use them in my research as well. It's a very sticky concept once people really truly know what it is, you know, theoretically, then they can move themselves towards there if they're exposed to other humans who are going through the same or have just recently been through the same process. Big group learning experiment that social media is. <laughs> yeah, um, dissemination of ideas. So how can people find out more about you? So my my website for the training opportunities for health professionals is healthnotdiets.com. And for my latest project, which is the Unpacking Weight Science project where I've got a online course and this is for so humans normal people <laughs> as well as those in the health wellness and medical professions uh, the, there's an online course and there's also a educational podcast that they can sign up to and the podcast comes with professional development materials including a quiz so if people are in professions where they can do their own professional development hours pick their own they can use that as hours for their credential oh brilliant i'll, yeah. def- I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes as well <laughs> great that's uh, uh it's got its own website unpackingweightscience.com well i don't know about you lot but i really liked fiona willa <laughs> i thoroughly enjoyed talking to her and um i could have spoken to her for hours and uh, But then that would have made it very boring for all of you lot. So I didn't speak to her for hours. I just spoke to her for 40 minutes or so. Um, I'm surely going to have her back on the podcast though. So if you have any questions that you think would be um, good to explore with this lady, then do email me, info at tabithafra.com. And I hope that cleared up some of the health of every size questions that some of you might have had. I know that like she was saying about the Wikipedia thing, it can be really messed up and different people's experiences that may not have actually been what health every size experience should have been can really mar what people think about the field. So I like that there is work happening to make the term a little bit more explicit, a little bit more defined and groups coming up that are actually sort of certifying people and making sure that when health at every size is what it's supposed to be, I guess. Well, we're going to have more focus on this in the next couple of weeks. And um, if you have any specific questions regarding health at every size, then please do get in touch because I would love to hear from you. Until next time, cheerio.